Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to Retrotube Archive Television Podcast. I'm Adam, but not a kitchen Adam. And joining me today for this special Moondial bonus episode is returning guest Ord's Violet. Last seen navigating the ghosts of suburban Paris, and now out among the ghosts of rural Lincolnshire like some Yorkshire Miss Raven. Hello Ord's Violet, how the devil are you? I am absolutely fine, as the devil may say. I don't even know what that means, but it sounded appropriate for <laughs> Moondial. And can I just say... From Paris to Lincoln, it's a, it's a, just a small step to make. It's almost identical in many ways. I think so, yes. Although we're uh, in a slightly different environment for this, aren't we? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Though that is a relevant point that I'll raise later on. Quite seriously, I can link Celine and Julie go boating to anything. But anyway, on with the show. I'll pass it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose I would, I would say for anyone who's lis- only listening to RetroTube, that's a reference to my other podcast, Cardboard Cinema Club, in which... Still, even though it was quite some time ago that we redid that episode, it's still the most recent episode <laughs> of uh, Cardboard Cinema Club. was uh, our episode of Celine and Judy Go Boating. So more ghosts and magical realism and stuff. I know. I love it. It's, it's, these are all my perfect sort of dream media entertainment, so this is fine. Just a word of apologies to everyone. My nose is completely wrecked from um, February cold, so if I sound incredibly nasal, that's why. Sorry, everybody. It's not that I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was quite poignant, but we shall get to that. You shall. So. Yeah, so I, I kind of mentally, I didn't ask you, but I mentally had you on the reserve bench just in case Heather couldn't do this. Because, as we mentioned in the actual main episode itself, Heather was kind of having doubts. And it did end up triggering a number of her phobias. Uh, I think particularly the kids in masks for the Halloween yeah. sequences, which she was not keen on. Yeah. And it turns out that Moondial is one of your favourite things anyway, and of course, that's not the Retrotube format. It makes a perfect bonus episode, and it would be a shame <laughs> to miss out on the um, the perspective of someone who loves it. Oh, thank you for this opportunity. Yes, as well as someone who's rather scared by it. <laughs> well, I can see why. It's really... Because I've, I've seen it loads over the years, and re-watching it again, I was reminded, it is... As I've got lots of notes about later on for the two episodes we look at in particular, it is a lot scarier than the average sort of children's bbc show this time say like green no or box delight it's very much a cut on the darkness scale above that hugely in fact i think so and it, it may be best that heather actually did duck out for the final two episodes because they they do go up a bit in intensity don't they yeah and re-watching that now for this purpose it's genuinely there are moments which will come to and i was kind of thinking this is something you would consider not including in a modern day show for kids right now it's, <laughs> this is mm. dark and unpleasant the implications are worse when you start thinking about it very closely. But I still love it. Yeah, so tell me about your your personal connection with Moondial and what it means, because you, you mentioned before that it's one of your comfort shows. It is. Comfort viewing. So, so what makes it your comfort viewing? It's comfort viewing and comfort reading as well, but I came to the TV show before the book, which it's based on. I must think, so it's late 1988, isn't it? So I was just 15 years old and probably sort of at the outer edge of when you stop 
allowing yourself to watch children's television programs. You come back to it later on in your 20s or whatever, and your university or something like that, but, or I did anyway. But it was the point where I was thinking, oh, maybe I should, maybe it's time for me to stop. And then I remember very clearly Moondale's on at five past five on Friday afternoons. And I was just, it, something about it just grabbed me, dragged me in straight away. And I think one of those things for starters was, there's this tendency in shows made for children to have at least three episodes cons- consisting of um, parents not believing you or not getting the hang of the magic or whatever it is. Oh, the the, the, ch- the children characters not doing that. I mean, Moondown moves at an incredible pace. They just set things up and let it go. And they remove all but the essential adults from the narrative straight away, brutally, as you discussed the other week, <laughs> <laughs> with violence and car crashes. And it just swept away. It was moving at such a pace. It was, it felt so much better than any genre TV of that nature, regardless of the, the intended audience was at the time. Remember, this is this is late 80s and Doctor Who was getting back on track a little bit with this Festa McCoy era. But still, it had lost a lot of that intensity and Moondale just felt right. And like you said, you said in the previous episode, um, it should the production team for this should have taken over Doctor Who basically, which would have been magnificent. Mm. It would have been amazing because the stuff they do in these stories, fantastic. And I was trying. I mean, right. Let's have a tear jerk, a few tear jerky moments here. Astonishingly, astonishingly, I was a lonely and somewhat isolated teenager. I know that might be shocking for everybody. I, <laughs> I know that might be a huge leap for many of you, but it's it was true. It spoke to me. I obviously. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I was isolated from the rest of my teenage community around the, where I was living, but it really spoke to me. Uh, Minty's isolation and the other kids' isolation, the fact they're trapped and there's this huge sort of horrible demonic peer group that pursues them around. It felt very familiar for a whole bunch mm. of reasons. Um, it really spoke to me. Also, I, I will freely admit to this, I'll have to admit, I was 15 years old. I had possibly my last childhood crush was on Siri Neal. I was just like, yeah, I don't know anyone like that in my life. Also, I had the same <laughs> hair as her, which was just like, you know, like so. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, the photographs exist, believe it or not. Nowadays, <laughs> I, I I, do not, shall we say. But um, yeah, and we're born on the same day, it turns out, which I, you know, just that, that gave me a little, a little, little happiness, a little warm glove happiness, Daniel and I. The exact same age. The exact same age, yes, indeed. I was like, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, so she was a childhood crush of mine, it's true. But generally, the production on this thing, it's, it's just gorgeous, and the depth of it. But also, beyond that, Helen Creswell, the, the author, I've loved her stuff since I could bet, since I could first read. And her story, she's, did she write this adaptation as well? I forget, actually, thinking about it. She's credited as doing so, so I, I assume thought she so. did. Yeah, yeah, I know she, she was on It wasn't ghost-written. No, she's on set as well, because I, I found an interview about it the other day on YouTube, in fact, which she's knocking about somewhere. Her, her ideas and the, the really haunting and ambiguous quality she brings to it, as, as in all her writing, she's a massively neglected writer. I would put Helen Kresel up there with Alan Garner, for example, and I think if she had worked outside the sort of genre of children's literature, then she would be getting the same kind of plaudits that Alan Garner quite rightly does because her material deals with really similar themes, I think. But anyway, I'm I'm obsessing. I've never read any, and I probably should or should have done at the time, possibly. They're still wonderful to read now. They all, very very often, there's there's a lot of sort of tropes that run through her work about isolated children who, for some reason or other, through like having moved house or illness or lots of reasons, 
are separated from their peer groups and they are sort of lost in unusual spaces. Uh, one of the first books is The Night Watchmen, which is about a, a boy who's recovering from scarlet fever, I think it is. And so he's in isolation and he can't go to school and he wanders around the town and discovers this sort of the magical world that's taking place below the sort of line of sight. Or up the pier where a girl who's moving house has to stay for two weeks in a seaside town and discovers there's this little weird time bubble at the end of the pier where sort of magical people are imprisoned. There's a lot of stories she writes like that and they're all very, very poignant and they all this strange hint. They're never entirely clear as whether this is just some kind of fantasy of, of, of a lonely child. And in what, it's in up the pier, in fact, where one of the characters, one of the older sort of magical characters says to the protagonist, are you so sure this is real when you're 30 years old? We you look back on the story you made up when you were 10 and think that story made it by the sea that time. Will you believe in it? And it's a really, really sort of unsettling moment for a, to read as a child as well. The idea that one of my favourite motifs, the idea of what happens to heroes of children's stories when they grow up, what becomes of them? How, does, how do you deal with that? Which Alan Garner does work with. And like I say, Helen Creswell does too. And of course, the, the real heroes of children's literature usually turned out to be quite grumpy, like Alice Liddell and Christopher Robin Milne, who oh, yeah. were most unkeen on <laughs> being associated with their childhood selves, which is a shame. There's a there's definitely a poignancy to that. Yeah, it's, there's, these are kind of a painful thought, isn't it? Christopher Robin was the one that really, he wrote an autobiography. It's really tragic. It's very, very sad. Oh, no. Oh, dear. So can you remember enough about the book to know whether there were many major differences between the book and the adaptation? Oh, yeah, certainly. I was rereading the book quite recently, actually. Um, I was very poorly over Christmas, so I bought myself a copy and reread it. It was like, it's just as good as I remember. It's very similar. It's incredibly similar. Um, the dialogue is pretty much word for word in a lot of places. Which I guess is one of the things of having the author do the adaptation. And I, I don't know if she, she did much other TV work. I think she did, um, she did some comedy stuff. Bagthorpe Saga on BBC Two. Oh. And Secret World of Polly Flint, I believe, is her as well. And I've got a feeling I might be wrong. Someone can surely correct us on this. I feel Lizzie Dripping might be her as well, but I think I could be wrong about that. I'll look that up when you tell us about the differences, if there are any. Okay, there are very few. It follows incredibly closely. Um, oh, I, I meant to step in. I meant, I meant to come on and just introduce myself at the start by simply saying, I've made a jelly. <laughs> Lizzie Dripping is Helen Cresswell, I so thought it was. she does have quite a background in TV, so I take it back. I just didn't do my research like a bad podcaster. No, that's fine. That's, I, 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 I will... I'll release information to the world. But the <laughs> the jelly line is in there, and it's got this whole like internal monologue from Minty, I remember very clearly, when Aunt Mary says children like jellies, and Minty's kind of thinking, no one ever says adults like steak, though. What, what are you on about, you mad old woman, basically? <laughs> oh, good. So she is. it's deliberate that she's quite an irksome character. Yeah, that performance is... The performances are all very, very close to how you imagine the book. They're, I think I've got a feeling that the book and the script were written very close together perhaps sort of release as a kind of tie-in ah. at the same time i suspect that was the case that it was literally like sort of written at the same time almost i had the original bbc edition it also had a big national trust logo stamped on it as well as i recall i'm sort of relieved that aunt mary is deliberately irksome because it's nothing against the actress valerie lush that i want to throw aunt mary out of a window <laughs> She's really, she really winds me up. I'm having to edit my notes that I wrote about the episode because the language gets a bit, gets a bit spicy as I go through. She irritates me more and more and more. 
yeah, the book is really, really, really precise. Even down to, as we'll see later on, the very final line of the book is Minty's last line of dialogue from the um, the show. I think the only change, as again we'll come to later, is the very, 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 very final shots happen elsewhere in the story. So the end of the book is quite abrupt, whereas the TV series have given it kind of like the very fantasy ending, which we'll talk about in a little while. And I think the opening shots of Minty's dream, because I did watch the first five minutes of the commentary and uh, the director Colin Kant said that they weren't scripted her dream sequence where she's running about in her nighty through the grounds oh yeah yeah that's right yeah that isn't there either I'd forgotten that part actually the rest of it is pretty much you can follow the descriptions around world is, is the same kind of character Miss Raven and Miss Vole are um, exactly as described not quite as Jacqueline Piercy perhaps but <laughs> what what could be as Jacqueline Piercy what as Jacqueline could be, yes <laughs> Yeah, so you see, like, my, I had like the, the horror of the, the 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 trauma of this for me as a fifteen year old watching this. Like, I had my my adolescent crush on Siri Neal, but also my like long standing crush on Jacqueline Pierce from as I'd seen from Blake Seven, and this was just horrifying. It was like this was the the, the, the emotional trauma this put me through. I can't begin to say it was just. <laughs> I just sat there going, "Oh God, my crushes are murdering each other." Sort of. Um, <laughs> She, she was always fairly murderous. She's always fairly murderous, it's true. Yeah. You know. It's why we love her. Exactly, exactly. And I believe her next role was in the BBC's, one of the BBC's last hurrahs in this direction, which is Dark Season a couple of years later, but I'll go on about that in a bit. So do you think watching this informed your love of the spooky and ghostly? I don't, actually, because I grew up, because I'm, I'm, like, I'm born in 73, so I grew up with things like uh, Clifton House Mystery, Moon Stallion, Sapphire and Steel. These were all the things that I watched. And in many ways, Moondale felt like the end of all that. You could tell the BBC were winding this kind of thing down. It really felt like it was becoming more and more of an event and these shows became rarer and rarer. So I think after this, there's only Dark Season and Century Falls, which were very, even more sort of spaced apart. And Tom's Midnight Garden as oh, well, Oh, yes, of course. of course, yeah. So were, were they 90s ones? I'm not familiar with Dark Season and Century Falls. They're the earliest genre work by Russell C. Davis, in fact. Ah, okay. Yeah, and they're about 91 and 92 or 3, I think. Still. They're, they're, they were on when I was at university anyway, and definitely too old for watching them, but we did anyway, because they were great. But they're like the BBC's last hurrah. So this really, and it felt... Perhaps it was because I was 15 and the 80s were coming to an end as well and I was re- approaching school leaving age. There was a really strong end of an era feel about it. Though it's like, this is the last spooky thing. This is this is a little reminder, but it felt it like going out on a high. Like it was it was calling back to those, you know, the 70 shows, like I said, Clifton House Mystery or, or Sapphire and Steel. It felt a little bit, you know, like a one final push for it. And I remember very clearly my parents loving Moondial as well and stopping what they were doing to watch it with me because they enjoyed it so much, which was quite unusual for my family. Yeah, I think my mum liked it. And of course, we had the extra bonus of it being where we live or close to where we lived. So it's like, oh, yeah, look, it's the orangery and all that kind of thing. So we were just admiring the uh, location work as much as anything else. But it's the kind of thing that my mum liked and we, we would watch together. She liked the sort of quite spooky things with a good story to it. Looking back, it almost feels like one of the final family viewing things for my family, at least. There's said to be a shift in viewing habits, isn't there? whereby the family unit viewing of the early 80s breaks up as you get into the 90s and everyone has their own TV and video records and whatever. So that model starts to disintegrate. And I think this is perhaps one of the last times my family did collectively watch something, maybe. I don't know. Perhaps. We've covered a lot of the stuff in the main episode that we did, but uh, there's a few things, obviously, that Heather didn't get to see because she watched the 
bizarrely truncated early 90s video release uh, on YouTube, which had some key scenes missing, including the, um, I don't know if, if it's something you agree with me on, the weird scene in the hospital with Aunt Mary and John. I think I ought to warn you, Minty, what to expect. You mean about, you mean about the tubes and things? You won't find it easy to see Kate, to see your mother. As you see, in a way, she won't be there. Just asleep? No, not just asleep. Much further away than that. But you mustn't be frightened, Minty, because she is still there. Of course she is. It's marvellous what they can do these days. And she'll probably know that you're there, somewhere deep down. I'm sure that can't be true. Not if she's still in a coma. Oh, yeah, no, that's really, that's really strange. There are so many parts of it just... She's almost like some kind of demonic Greek chorus in that scene, just in the background, like that. Ah, <laughs> here's some good news. Where's this bad news from me? She's horrible. Well, they, it's it's odd because they kind of the characterizations are almost contradictory. So at first, it's Aunt Mary is essentially saying, "Oh, she's she's fine. She's just asleep." Then it's John who says, "Oh no, no, it's deeper than that. She's not just asleep." But if you talk to her, she'll hear you and know you're there. And then Aunt Mary says. How could she know you're there? She's in a coma. And it's such a strange, sort of weird. And I don't know if it's, de- do you think it's deliberately weird? Or if it's just the awkwardness of low-budget 80s TV? No, I think it's deliberately weird. There's a lot of stuff in this which is odd, I have to say. There's a lot of things this is really odd. There's some parts, some bits of episode five that I was almost uncomfortable with rewatching them now. So yeah, there's, there's definitely, they're trying to do interesting things with it. And it's, it, that sequence is very unsettling. And the beat... It's beautifully performed because the sort of back and forth between those two actors is just with kind of minty sort of caught in the middle of it almost verbally, but it's really intense and very, very strange. And yeah, it's hilarious at the same time, but it feels <laughs> dreamlike, doesn't it? I was thinking that the dialogue doesn't sound like the way that people speak, but not in a bad way. It does have that sort of odd dreamlike way that the sentences aren't quite what you'd expect people to say. Yeah, I, I very much got that. And it's, I was I'm wondering why they chose to cut some of those sequences out. Because, yeah, obviously for reasons of time, and I, there probably won't be great artistic reasons behind it. They did hack that version out about because I had it on VHS. Well, there's a great huge chunky BBC video of things that weighs about four stone. I remember it being annoyed that bits were missing from there at the time. And of course, John Abbott was missing, who's possibly one of my favourite Doctor Who side characters, Vince in Horror of Fang Rock. Yeah, they just they slashing everything out of it. It's any good. It's awful. I love the bit Minty loses, in fact, loses her mother to the car crash and the coma and whatever. Runs has a, has a good horrific scream, which traumatised me at the time. Never mind again now. But then she runs from there. She runs to Belton. World shows up and goes like, oh, by the way, I need to rescue these child ghosts when you got them in it. Like, what? And she's like, okay, <laughs> yes, I will do that for you. I mean, I'm not doing anything else. Yeah, it's it's just drops you. The, the, the speed at which it moves, the speed at which it establishes sort of rules, but not really. And it just ju- kind of jumps around the, the, te- the temporal jumps and shifts and the fact like, is this time travel? Are these people ghosts? It is bitterly obvious that the E.L. Gravestone, who that belongs to, it's, it's very, very obvious. It's very unsubtle. We're supposed to take Tom Short for Edward as a joke, but we don't, I think. Yeah. I think we pick up on the fact that his his name is actually Edward, and, and he's not just larking about. Larking about, you see, that's a pun. I, I see, I got it, I got it, I got that one. Yeah, <laughs> Guess his name's right. Edward Larkin. Oh, there we go. It's, I, I got <laughs> What I didn't get at the time, as I remember very clearly, probably due to my autism, I got, I straight away spotted EL, that same, he's dead, he's dead, ghost all along. 
But also, just to give that away, spoilers, everyone. When Minty says Minty short of Penelope, I, I spent ages trying to work that one out, and I was fifteen years oh, no. old. So <laughs> I completely went over my head the structure of that joke. Like, nope, sailing straight over. How does that work? I thought her name was Araminta. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Not always the smartest in the uptake. <laughs> Miss Raven's appearance, of course, is deeply fascinating. Yeah, what's, what's your thoughts on the fact that, because one of the things I said about it is that, uh, much as I love Jacqueline Pierce, it's slightly distracting them having spent three and a half episodes building this really diaphanous and carefully constructed atmosphere to suddenly have his serverland now. Uh yeah, I can see it both ways. Yeah, it is suddenly like suddenly you have a villain. She is the most villainy villain who ever lived. She is this this, <laughs> this gothic figure. My notes talk about her outfits. The bit where she turns around in episode five or six, she has a huge cobweb across her back, which is amazing. Yes, I brilliant. Know, I know people are dressed like I dress like that on occasion. She's very Halloween. She is very very Halloween. She is very well goth at CNA. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, she is very very at the top. And you've got Jacqueline Pierce. I feel like the Miss Raven in the book is a lot older. Even though she still says she's 37, but she seems a lot older and more stereotypically witch-like. Like the kind of like this very much of a stereotype of the governess Jacqueline Pierce. Now I think the, the glamour kind of works as well. But also there's sort of a problem in that without Miss Raven and Miss Vole, the conflict starts to diminish because apart from all the horrible children we'll talk about later on, there's no sort of focus for it all. Again, it's a thing Helen Creswell does sort of bring in a villainous character quite late in the story. Often, and I'll not spoil which ones it comes in at, it's a character who's been like a random character all the way through. He's revealed to be the sort of Miss Vole character in the last third of the book or TV adaptation sometimes. I can't complain about Jacqueline Pierce being in something, though, because it's Jacqueline Pierce, for goodness sake. <laughs> and actually, Miss Vole, who is, should we say, Miss Raven's counterpart in the 18th century. Yeah. She's the governess of Sarah, who's the third child. I said she was essentially playing Servalan in the main episode. But in episode five, we see her playing Miss Vole as well as just Miss Raven. And Miss Vole is very much not Servalan. She's almost like the anti-Servalan because she's not at all cool. No. She's very, very edgy and manic and slightly hysterical and isn't in control. Exactly. She's And that's just, you sort of see how, probably how much Jacqueline Pierce got wasted in parts over the years because she plays with very different people. They don't pay me very much, you know. I shall never get rich waiting after you. And no one speaks to me unless they have to. And do you know why, Sarah? Because they think something evil must rub off on me being with you day in, day out. Perhaps it does. Maybe they're right. I sometimes wonder whether I exist at all. I sometimes wonder whether I shall go mad. Shut in here. Why do you never look at me? You look at me! There. Don't turn round. Wear the glass. I am still here. At least the mirror tells me that. Augusta Vaux. 37 years old, penniless, spinster, a servant. Oh. But I am a beautiful woman. Such beautiful, smooth, white skin. 
Do you not find me beautiful, Sarah? Do you? Tell me, do you? Oh, yes, yes. And beautiful faces need mirrors, Sarah. So today I shall spend with my own reflection. Better bury your head, dear. The mirrors are coming out to play. But at the same time, that sort of um, that kind of loses the effect a little bit because they're not the same. They don't seem to be the same person. Her acting skill works against her a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Although I suppose there's a sort of a more organic subtlety in the fact that they're quite different but played by the same person. Yeah, nothing's really clarified. So I kind of wonder. No. It's, it never explains what the connection with them is, and it's almost I do kind of wonder if the reason Miss Raven is the kind of cool one is because she's she's you know she's had three hundred years to plot revenge sort of thing and come back. <laughs> is that what she is? I don't know. My notes at the end of episode five, by the way, just to jump ahead, do say worst cliffhanger reveal ever. <laughs> <laughs> Costume reveal cliffhanger. Yeah, that one, and also earlier in the episode as well. And there's this huge build to like who is Miss Vole, and everyone, even the kids in the audience, going like. Yeah, it's, it's very clearly Miss Raven. It's the same. She's got a bit longer hair. Um, <laughs> they're not great on those reveals, but I don't care. For people who haven't seen it, the, the cliffhanger of episode five is <laughs> Miss Raven comes down. She says, I'll show you my ghost hunting outfit. So she goes upstairs and then comes back down with a uh, lovely hooded cape on and does a twirl. Look, don't I look great in my cape? And that's the cliffhanger. It, it's Literally, terrifying. isn't it? We waited a week <laughs> for that in the 80s. We waited a week yes. to find out what happened next. Which is, she puts the hood up. <laughs> yeah, Literally, that's the cliffhanger reveal. She puts the hood up. Miss Raven's going on a ghost hunt tonight. I shall wear my special ghost hunting outfit. I shall fetch it for you to see. She really is rather strange. Can she really see ghosts, do you think? I shouldn't be surprised. I think she's a witch. Oh, Minty. There. She's dressed as Servalan in Deliverance, essentially, isn't she? She actually is, yes. That is very mm. true. I hadn't thought of that. It's probably the same <laughs> outfit, to be honest. The same hood. Is it a white hooded cape in Deliverance? Uh... I can't remember. I haven't seen it in quite a while. It's the ambiguity of those episodes because we don't. It explains nothing at all. Who is? What's the connection between them? Never tells you. Are they the same person and they're hundreds of years old, or are they two different people who happen to look similar? Their personalities are different. They do different things. One's a ghost hunter. One's a really aggressive guardian of a child. Yeah, a disturbingly ad- aggressive guardian of a child. That's the part. One of the bits I became uncomfortable with. In children's television adaptations, there is the recurrent trope of the the mean governess. The mean governess, the evil stepmother kind of thing. And they're often very cartoony and fairytale-y and over-the-top. Miss Vol's treatment of Sarah is savage, very realistic emotional abuse of a kind which anyone that's worked in safeguarding situations, as I have, is horribly familiar. And that was... To see that, to re-watch that now with that in mind, was that's unsettling. It's not fairy tale cruelty it is actual emotional abuse of the kind that people have to deal with and process and work with very often and very calculating as well i think it's brutally sadistic and it's very unsettling to watch although towards the end she's posited as being pure evil and sort of like an embodiment of evil in in the way that these things often are in fantasy there's a recognizable 
cruelty behind it because she says at one point Augusta Vole 37 spinster penniless so she's clearly been affected by the bigotry against Sarah who has the birthmark on her face and has been shunned by society and Miss Vole has been left in charge of Sarah so she's also shunned by society as a result she's taken her own unhappiness out on Sarah it's almost like this horrible kind of trickle-down abuse. Yeah, exactly. And as I say, my reading of it, and I think it's deliberately left very vague, is almost like that Miss Raven is the sort of the echo of that somehow, whether consciously or not. I think the implication is consciously, actually, that she's that resentment building up, and she's presumably she's the one that's, as, as World says, she's the one that's kind of imprisoning all the, all the children over the years. She's locking them all away, and they're begging for help. Is that the implication? I, I don't know. <laughs> she doesn't seem supernatural because her uh, it's coming from such a realistic or an identifiable place. Yeah. That she's taking it out on this, the, the bad life she's ended up with. She's taking it out on this girl. Miss Vole is clearly extremely unhappy herself. Yeah. And whatever's been going on has turned her into this hysterical vain weirdo who's obsessed by her own looks and looking in the mirror. And one of the lines is, better bury your head, dear. The mirrors are coming out to play. Oh, that's genius. I love that bit. It's so dark. Which is a great line, but it's not the sort of thing a normal person says. No, not at all. I do notice, actually thinking back, there's a hint, there's an extra hint in the book, perhaps one of the very few details, which is when the children, the mob that we'll talk about later on, the children form the kind of mob. It's suggested that they're not children anymore at that moment and that Miss Vole isn't Miss Vole anymore. As if some sort of, you know, kind of stone tape-esque way, like something's taken them over. Well, we'll talk about it later on. When the spell's broken, they kind of revert to being frightened kids again and run off. But there's a suggestion that it's like something that's... That these are all parts that they're playing out, that something else is manifesting through them almost it's hinted at in the book like that never in the tv show though because we don't really get any sense of any motivation other than her own horrible life and unhappiness yeah you know what i'm thinking about it of course they do actually spell that that out in the tv show um the, the moon the moon dial itself looks at Ember of his system said semper more light and shadows by turn but always love and then you have chronos and eros fighting each other i think that's the premise it's the battle there are forces of time versus the force of love is the yeah now i get it yeah I mean, the kids and Miss Vol Miss Vol and Miss Raven represent the force of time and Minty, Tom, Sarah and Dory represent the force of love, I guess. Huh. That's the battle, maybe? I don't know. The world is the balancing factor in the middle. I'll go with that. Do we ever know why he's called World? Or do you have a theory as to why he's called World? Oh, found theories on Moondale. There's a niche ready <laughs> ready for you. There's about to be one. It's kind of like partly like a perhaps like a classical reference. We have Kronos Neros and the world is the world. Tarot reference, maybe as well. The world is the final card in the tarot deck, where it symbolizes the end of a cycle and moving on to something else. Oh, there we go. Another callback to Celine and Julie there. Absolutely. Tarot. I'm everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> right there, every single time. Um, but bear in mind, Celine and Julie, just to read it for everyone that's not just, or not to read it, but to broadcast this to everyone who's never seen it, my favorite movie of all time, which is indeed about. Um, some time-travelling young people who have to save a child from a horrible fate in a previous era. It's the same, it's the same I swear to you. Moondale, Selena, <laughs> Julie, it's, it's all a pattern. Just to scroll back to the very beginning of episode five, that very first scene where Tom and Minty are following Sarah through the grounds, you get a really great sense of space from that. It's the first moment, I think, when you really get a feel for the layout of the grounds of 
Belton House. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? And it, it gives a sense of the hugeness of the sky. They use the sky really nice in those. And even the day for night shooting doesn't really notice that much there. It looks haunted. I couldn't navigate the place by memory, but I'd love to go back and just having seen it quite recently, explore that area again. Because I think it's it's also fairly faithful to the geography of it. You don't really get the sense they've cheated anything. Because you even get a long shot where the church is right next to the... In my memory, the church is across the road from Belton House, but it's not. It's right next to it. Because you can see it in the long shot. It's right next to the orangery, I think. So oh, I've driven past so many times and never been. That's the annoying thing. Oh. I, I always used to see it and think, that's Moondial, but I never went there. Oh, you should go. I will do. I will, I'll make a point of doing that. I'll make my summer vacation to Belton House. Me, you and Heather could go. Yeah, let's do it. Will Heather be able to cope? That's all I'm saying. No offence, Heather. <laughs> we probably have to put masks on. No masks. <laughs> Just sunny days, cup of tea. <laughs> exactly. Chips. It's been great. We love it. Cup of tea in the orangery. My, my notes for that first sequence, by the way, to take up... The, we, we're, we're talking the sort of dark, haunted, emotional stuff. My notes always say also say here... Running after a small child screaming stop always works. <laughs> <laughs> Mysteriously, the traumatised girl does not stop and talk to the two ghostly strangers running after her. A line I loved, um, Sarah says, I haven't got any friends. And Tom says, I ain't got any neither, except in her. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> I love that and points a really dismissive thumb towards Minty. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, that, I noticed that bit. It's great. He's a great character, though, isn't he, Tom? He's really good. He's really... And again, it's, it's beautifully... It's almost minimalist. They just establish it with the very, the very fewest character notes you can put in there, and it works perfectly. And I think it would be far too earnest without him. He's like not the comic relief, but he's the he just gives it that bit of a bit of sauciness, not like rude sauciness, but you know, like yeah, you know, bit of Cockney swagger. He's the young Sid James character, <laughs> which is why what happens in this episode, I remember being shocked by as a fifteen-year-old as well. So this is, of course, the episode where Tom's in the graveyard and he starts to cough and a huge amount of blood comes out of his mouth for children's television. Yeah. He basically coughs up a huge smear of blood down his chin. I'd kind of been... I knew it was coming. I was kind of expecting, like, blood spots on the handkerchief kind of thing. Nope, it's a massive gout of red blood down his chin. It really is. And it's horrible for it to happen to that character, the sort of comedy one. We have seen in the violent situations, the way he's treated by the other servants, and that's horrible, obviously, but... This, to see that and to understand this is his death we are seeing and being foreshadowed right there. And it's brutal. And probably almost everyone watching has already picked up on the fact that that tiny grave is his. Oh, yeah, completely. Because they let you sort of play around with the time travel thing, the sort of, you know, Tom's been garden vibes and whatever. They let you play around with that and then every so often they'll slap you in the face around you and know all, all the past characters are dead. That's the point. And whilst there is a time travel aspect to it, it's never quite clear what that is because they clearly all die. Tom clearly dies of uh, tuberculosis, I presume it is. His sister presumably does as well, which comes to later on. Yes, she's got the spits. The bit that I really, really disturbs me is what happens to Sarah because we never see anything. Obviously, it's kids' TV. They're not going to show us anything like that. They never even hint at it particularly. Clearly, all three children die. How does Sarah die? Because there's a lot of potential ways that could happen, which are none of which are anything you want to think about too closely. We're getting into episode six there, but we are. Let's let's. Well, I'll dial it back. <laughs> I have a few notes about that, so we can we can come to that. But yeah, so speaking about how fast paced it is, that's something I noticed 
in that bit where Miss Vole infers that if Sarah looks into a mirror, the mirror will crack and the devil will come out. So that scares Tom and Tom runs away. Minty corners him and tells him off. Then he coughs up some blood and Minty's shocked and then he fades away. And it's so fast. Yeah. You almost can't keep up. Almost leaves you breathless the, the pace with which it happens, and, and he's gone. Oh, it's disorientated. And suddenly, yeah, we're back in the present day, are we? And, and, and she's not sure if she'll ever see him again. She's kind of slightly resigned to the fact that oh, he's gone now. <coughs> Why did you run off? We could have helped her. <coughs> then you heard what she said. The devil. Oh, don't be so <coughs> stupid. <coughs> Surely you don't. <coughs> oh no. That does it. I'm finished. With her and you. I ain't playing these devil's games no more. I'm only six foot tall and a footman. And I'm going to fetch our door here. Tom! Come back! Tom! Yeah. Oh, and then, of course, what happens next? is you see Minty sort of wandering through the garden to herself, being the very confident, time-travelling, you know, ghost-talking <laughs> woman that she is. And then suddenly the psychic attack happens, which is the first hint that there's more to Miss Vole than just an abusive, um, just an abusive, horrible woman. Minty's kind of like, has this psychic bombardment. She's very children of the stones, I thought. Or, again, Sapphire and Steel. She sees the faces, and there's all these visual distortions, and babbling voices and things like that and something is clearly attacking her presumably the sort of forces of time kind of thing i guess but it never specifies what it is something attacks her psychically and it's a very it's a new it's sort of leveling the plot a bit now it's like okay it's not just you as the invisible woman sneaking around and like getting away with all changing things in the past now something's actually after you something is trying to get rid of you and shove you out of the past until it does and it's a new it does step it up nicely there and then minty goes home and is immediately told off by Aunt Mary. <laughs> she's left left the front door. You can't imagine what a shock it was. It says here on the page, Aunt Mary really is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's not yeah. just me. Oh, <laughs> God, no. I can't stand Aunt Mary. It's horrible. I think it's the fact she's over it. You can't imagine what a shock it was to find the front door open. It's like, just calm down just say can can you just make sure you lock the door behind you in future but no she has to do her old lady overreacting you live in belton mary calm down <laughs> i know who's gonna break it well probably that ginger boy will break in and that's stuff. true actually yeah thinking about it she's got yeah, a point he's horrible kids around yeah <laughs> yes and just the fact that she's been won over she's been charmed by miss raven yeah in this episode at least that's something they drop that later on but yeah she's been Almost spellbound by her in some ways, yeah. So there you are. I'm sorry I'm late. I lost all track of time. I'm not talking about being late, Minty. I don't expect to come down in the morning and find my front door unlocked. You can't imagine what a shock it was. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll lock it next time, I promise. Oh, no, no. Your aunt will put the key somewhere else. Somewhere safe. I may have to go out myself at night in the course of my work. But that is quite a different matter. Oh, quite a different matter, Miss Raven. I think they should have cast Paul Darrow to play World and Jan Chapel to play Aunt Mary. <laughs> That'd have been great. Michael Keating as Tom. Oh, God, no, I can't get the image out of my head. Stop it. Please, please, <laughs> don't, don't do that. No. 
Following up from this, we get the bit in the part where Minty's reading the book and she 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 cites the quote that he looks um, looks at him and if he sees him said Semper more and she cites it back and then Miss Vol- Miss Raven sorry appears out of nowhere and he's horrible. That's interesting. But give it to me and takes her book away from her. Yeah, she's so rude. And then she has the bit which is again uncomfortable to watch, especially by today's standards, where they sort of face each other and. Raven tells her you, you want to the hospital and touches her head in a very, very like yes. possessive, horrible way. And it's really yeah, creepy. She runs horrid. her fingers through her hair, doesn't she? Yeah, it's intensely disturbing. The line is, there's someone waiting to take you to the hospital, which he makes sound like a threat. Oh, yes, that's the it's, line, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's like the posh version of you're going home in an uh, ambulance. <laughs> Oh, good grief. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. <laughs> For the night cometh, cutting off all power of passing time. Luxe umbrovicism, sed semper amor. Light and shadows by turns, but always love. I like that. Mum would too. That sounds an interesting book, Araminta. Might I borrow it? Give it to me. And hurry home. Someone waiting to take you to the hospital. Wait, but he's in the hospital. Get the weird shift where she jumps, she looks to one side and she's in the graveyard again. Yes, I love things like that. That's another dreamlike thing where geography isn't always a fixed thing. My notes here at this point also say, so these are all child ghosts repeating the same thing. They are in hell, basically. Is that what's going on? Because it seems to be that vibe <laughs> with all the devil references. Is it some kind know? of purgatory? I mean, I think the very ending sort of suggests that in a way. Yeah, I think it does. On a slightly lighter note, though, I wrote down, I love Minty's waistcoat. It's good, is it? Does she ever take that off? It's fantastic. I wanted that waistcoat when I was 15. I really it's want to great, wear that. isn't it? I want to dress. It's cream. It's largely how I did dress. With embroidered sun patterns on it. Colourful kind of multicoloured sun. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's a good look. And it's I, I desperately want to dress like that. And it's age. better than her generic turquoise 1987 jumper that she wears in the earlier episodes oh world's accent what is going on there <laughs> what is that but there is it he does a really nice little thing i think this is intentionally this scene tom invisible to the regular 20 20th century people because he's a ghost he's time traveled he's standing next to minty world comes up and has this conversation with him and as world leaves his eyes just flicker and then his eyes lock onto what must be Tom's eyeline as he leaves, as if it's just a little hint that he can see him, but he's just not acknowledging him to keep you know, to maintain the pretense. So he just sort of like almost makes eye contact. I wonder if it was one or the other. He just sort of like makes eye contact automatically because there's someone stood there. But well, either way, it just it, it suggests that World's completely aware of what's going on. He just doesn't acknowledge it for some reason. And then Tom chucks a stone at a cat, a little sod, as it says in my notes. <laughs> Well, this is where we find out that uh, Tom's name is Teddy Larkin. It is, yes. No relation, presumably, to Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> or Pop Larkin. No. <laughs> I'm fixing a fly and the moon's made of green cheese. And I'll be six for high yet, or my name ain't Teddy Larkin. What? What did you say? What? What did you say your name was? Teddy Larkin, of course. 
You said it was Tom. Tom short for Edward, you said. That's right. Same as yours is Minnie short for Penelope. That was a joke. Look, I'm too light and see. But kicking boys here is called Tom. See? What you mean all kitchen boys? That's right. Gotta be. Someone yells Tom, and that means kitchen boys. And we all come running. See? That's terrible. Don't you mind? It gets used to it. Three of us here. All Toms. All what's your name? Get called that and all. What's your name? I think I'm going to go on having to call you Tom. That's what you are to me now. Do you mind? Of course not. Why should I? But to me, you're a proper Tom. Not just a kitchen one. And I like this idea that all the kitchen boys are called Tom. That's a nice bit of fairly quite subtle world building. Yeah, it's horrible and, yeah, really effective at the same time. They just delete everyone's identity. The horrible, abusive adults have no reason to see them as people or learn their real names. It's just like, right, you're all called Tom. And he's so he's in that era where he knows his place, so he's accepted this and has taken this on board and is quite happy that uh, Minty doesn't call him Teddy. Yeah. I feel that Minty should have made the effort to call him Teddy. I think so too, personally. It's like, <laughs> actual right name is quite a big deal for me. Yes. Obviously, but you know. <laughs> I also, there's a running thing though, isn't there? Because like, um, Sarah is, referred of her to as the devil child, not by her name. Minty has her, like, Araminta Minty sort of thing, but also the fact that she's seen as like, the child. Children like jellies, said Aunt Mary. They each one of their identities is kind of eroded or ignored by the adults around yes. them. It's a horrible little detail. It's probably entirely historically accurate as well, isn't it? I'm presuming it is. Mm. Oh, I can well imagine. Yeah, I can imagine that she's probably done a bunch of research yeah. for this. She also, Minty also gives Tom her wristwatch in this sequence to find out when it's midnight, which is my notes say, that's going to cause, it's going to wreck the timeline that is. Wristwatch found in 1871. Sapphire and Steel turn up. The Doctor will arrive, you know. Or Arm Clock, as Tom calls them. Arm Clock. Arm Clock's great. I want an Arm Clock. Clocks, great ticking things. Bing, yeah. bang, bong, morning, noon and night. <laughs> He's got all the best dialogue. And that, of course, leads into the aforementioned cliffhanger where, shock horror, Miss Raven comes in in a dress. Mm. Well, okay. <laughs> what will happen next? As I said, next week, she puts the hood up. <laughs> she does. <laughs> It's a very big hub. It was great. It's a fantastic outfit. This is the bit where she's got the spiderweb on her back as yes. well. Yes, she turns around to go upstairs to get her ghost hunting outfit and you'd see this big... <laughs> and it's it's not like a, it's stuck on her... It's part of the design of her dress, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's sort of woven in a translucent section. It's great. I love it. I totally want that top. And poor Aunt Mary's baffled by anything outside of her narrow old lady worldview. <laughs> She just looks constantly bemused. Yeah, well, she's lived in Belton and in that, you know, next door to the haunted house for like 80 odd years, whatever it is. She's never noticed the ghost either. So, you know, is she a, I presume she's a great aunt Mary. She's not Minnie's mum's sister, one imagines, but yeah. I presume it's a great aunt. I think she's her mum's godmother. Oh, that's it. Yeah, you're quite right. Yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. My only other thought about episode five was uh, just a, a slight vague side thought that I miss Raven so much fun. And she's so Halloween. She would have been quite nice if she was a good guy. She would actually. I would. I would love that same kind of character to be in a shirt, just like you know, in another series that would be 
lonely girl meets like the eccentric old goth who leads her on a supernatural adventure. That'd be fantastic. I'd love I'd watch the hell out of that. She's essentially an eccentric old goth, really, isn't she? I found an interview with Cyril on YouTube, and I believe she said that she stayed in touch with Jacqueline Pierce for years and years and years afterwards, which is nice. Even though they didn't initially get on, they clearly did subsequently. I decided episode five was my favourite episode since episode one. It is good. I liked episode one the best out of the first four that we watched, but episode five was particularly good. Despite how horrible that character was, I really enjoyed uh, Jacqueline Pierce playing a different character and playing Miss Vole and seeing seeing her range. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I like episode five an awful lot. Episode six is awesome. It's fantastic. I'm wrong. I love Moondale. Episode six, if it suffers from anything, it's that um, BBC serials thing. We had to sort of like crush down a lot of dialogue to type all your loose ends in 24 minutes. And it's going to hit that a little bit. But they, they manage it as best they can, which is to say it's still wonderful. Absolutely amazing. But it does get hit slightly by the fact you can't do much more characterization now. It's got to be the big dramatic climactic moments, things like that. We never find out who Miss Raven is at all, whether she's actually a real villain or just a rude eccentric. We don't in the slightest. She's very corrupt. That the scenes in episode five when she's sort of this whole horrible face touching bit, that suggests to me I'm still holding to my theory that she's sort of like she's both, that she's kind of being controlled or manipulated by some big sapphire and steel esque you know, time breach or whatever. I think it's only the casting that suggests she actually has any involvement with the plot at all. If she was played by some... I mean, I know this is, this is a big if because she isn't, but if she was played by someone different to the actor who played Miss Vole, then she'd have no impact on the plot whatsoever. She's this ghost hunter who, who turns up, does nothing and goes away again. Yeah, the only thing she really does is she uh, takes the key. Yes. That's to lock into the house. Yeah. As if that's the reason she's there to stop her being there that, on that night, particularly. I often wonder if that's the reason why that she's there to stop the time travel taking place, perhaps. I don't know. And it's interesting because sometimes she does seem powerful and sinister and threatening, and other times she seems a bit dotty. And that's the one thing that differentiates her from Servalan is she has these moments of dottiness. The fact that she's so tickled by having this ghost hunter outfit. You can't imagine Servalan <laughs> you can't imagine Servalan doing a twirl in one of her cope capes. I mean, I can a little bit, but I mean, <laughs> Servalan never had a cobweb on a cobweb <laughs> no, blouse. Just a lizard. Here's the hint that there's more to Miss Raven. Oh, yes. Minty says to her, careful you don't see yourself in a mirror. And Raven goes like, what? <laughs> the massive overreaction and then flounces out. Oh, yeah. Careful you don't see yourself in the mirror because the devil might appear. Yeah, if you see a ghost in a mirror, the devil will get you. And she gets the right hump. And Aunt Mary gets the right hump as well because Aunt Mary, of course, has no sense of humour. Absolutely not. Why would she? Oh, no, Minty, she... why did you say a thing like that? She laughs a little bit at this point. She's re- she's almost, She says, like, I'll be glad that she's gone. She's almost human just for a second. Well... Very nice. It has a hood, too. There. It's a perfect disguise. Shouldn't it be white? White? Whatever do you mean? For a ghost. Aren't they usually dressed in white? (laughs) I'm not trying to be a ghost. Silly child. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were. Think. I am anonymous. I could come from any age in this costume. Ghosts are sensitive, you see, and very easily frightened. If one did see me, it would simply assume that I was from his own time. Now do you understand? What a sensible idea, Miss Raven. 
The steward at the house has been frightfully helpful. I can go anywhere in the house that I please. Make sure you don't look in a mirror. What? What did you say? Oh, it's just something I heard. That if you see a ghost in the mirror, then the devil gets you. Minty. I never heard of such a thing. Minty, whatever made you say such a thing? Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. Upsetting her like that. She did seem rather upset. I wonder why. Oh, I shall be glad when she's gone. <laughs> Minty decides to disobey Aunt Mary and go out and meet Tom at midnight. The Wicker Man remake starts at this point. Yes. Because a lot of very evil children come out of the house, you'll notice. Not from the village, as they do in the book. Mm. Not from the woods. They come from Belton itself. They come out of the orangery, don't they? Suggesting that there's something in the house that's sending them almost. I don't know. Oh, I like that idea, yeah. They spill out of the house and their masks are very elaborate and they're certainly not sort of working class rural kid masks. They are very demonic and they're just generally evil. I describe them as art department masks. Yeah. But I don't mind that. I think like the day for night filming, it adds to the weird atmosphere. I think I think often in something else, the fact that it, they're so manufactured and they have... The moulded plastic pumpkins are maybe a bit more distracting, but <laughs> the fact that their masks are so beautiful and have been clearly been made by an art department... It didn't bother me because it, it makes it more magical realism and it makes it a bit more heightened and a bit more dreamlike. And they seem possessed initially. Yes. And the, the book makes it very clear that they're being possessed or controlled in some way. See, this is the point I, was, I sort of hinted at earlier on. I think it's a really dark point. It's, and most of the audience wouldn't pick up on this. We've seen how Tom and Tom's sister Dory are going to die of tuberculosis. And obviously all these kids are dead. Is the implication that the children murdered Sarah this night? than the proper version of history. Oh, it could be, because, because this is the second time we see that exact moment, isn't it? Yeah. I think in episode three or four, Minty witnesses this moment happening again. I think it's the, the climax of one of the episodes. Yeah, it's two or three, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Because you see the bit where they're burning their capes and saying things like, well, that got her. And I assume they it was just because they scared her, but you could be right. It could be suggested that they did actually murder her. Yeah, because it's either that or Miss Vole kills or one or the other, but because um, they all die in childhood, that's the point. So I think the implication is the kid's killer. Wow. Which is a really nasty... That's dark. It's, it's not just me making that up. That's definitely implied. or It's a possibility. There's only sort of two ways it could happen, really. Yeah. Certainly now you say it. It hadn't occurred to me, but now you say it. The emphasis that's put on that one event. In fact, it happens twice. Just immediately before that, when Tom and Minty go to the moon dial to travel back in time to the 18th century... Minty says, For the last time. And I like it when shows have that sense of knowing that the end is near and you're building up towards... Oh, yeah, I love that. ...the climax and the fact that we're doing things for the final time. I love that. And Children's BBC used to do it so well. They would establish a set of world rules and you go through them and then at the end you'd be like, and this is the final time we play out this to the audience work along with that and they know this is the right case this final one there's a sense of saying goodbye to it or closure it's a thing you don't often get very much in serial entertainment anymore yes because even though we know it's episode six so it's the final episode there could be an idea that oh they'll all be time traveling forever and having jolly adventures after the series has yeah. ended but <laughs> for the final time that sense of ending and tying things off is really poignant i think and it's literally a sense of ending and tying things off because as i say 
they're all dead. Mm. <laughs> Can't emphasize enough. They're all dead. And even if they didn't die in childhood, they'd be all dead anyway, because this is 1987 yeah, exactly. and <laughs> well over 100 years old. And yeah, this sequence is horribly creepy all throughout. It's really, really, really scary. Yes. Even for Hans or like battle axes like me, it's really frightening. <laughs> it's really the child, the child face is rushing at the camera. <laughs> Although my notes do say this, saying how scary they are. My notes say, I can't help but thinking Minty could just clout a couple of them and they'd run off. <laughs> <laughs> a quick scotch around the head, like, get out of it. <laughs> Miss Raven turns up now. With the biggest hood you have ever seen. It looks like the cut from Things to Come, the 1930s one. It's massive. It's huge. It's black silk. I want that outfit so hard. It looks so good. Yes. Oh, no, it's Miss Miss Vole, isn't it, that turns up at that point? Oh, Miss Vole. My apologies, yes. no, Miss Vole. It's, it's a big oh, kind of, almost like a big wicker hood or something. Big kind of structure. It is, yeah. It's huge. It's, it's a fantastic look. She sort of like squishes out of the house, being all demonic. At which point we get the classic scene with the mirror being turned under as a talisman. At which point, oh, yeah, you see, because you know that old John Nathan Turner quote, the memory cheats. Yeah. I, my memory of this scene is always, no matter how many times I rewatch it, it, my original memory always overwrites it. In my memory, Miss Vol shatters like glass. This is just, oh, this is like the opening visual titles. Effect. Yeah, exactly like that. Must be where I'm getting it from. What actually happens is she turns into Quantel Squares and flies away. <laughs> Quantel Squares was exactly the two words I wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh, you know me so well. <laughs> she, she doesn't disintegrate so much as the entire screen disintegrates into Quantel Squares. Yeah. Uh, which isn't, isn't quite as impressive as... I mean, it's one of those things that I think people say nowadays, oh, it, yeah, back then it looked great, but I think it'd be one of those things that even then I'd be watching it and go, oh, no. <laughs> no, that didn't work. I did. Yeah, I believe that I did. That's why I suppressed the memory replaced it. Because the effect of the opening credits is amazing. Yes, it's animated, it's animated. isn't it? It's yeah. just different. At which point, Dory turns up. Dory suddenly runs in. Little Dory. It's little Dory, right? <laughs> From London. And as my notes say, why does Dory... Because she's died. Before we get to the climax, uh, I wanted to go back slightly uh, because there's a scene we didn't talk about, but I think it, it was quite an interesting one. It's the bit after they've rescued Sarah from the horrible children. They then persuade her to look at her own reflection because she's she's never seen her own face except, I think, in the, the water of the fountain at midnight. So she's never had a clear look at her own face. And she's, she's been convinced by Miss Vole that she's so horrific that... Uh, mirrors will crack and the devil will come out which is not how we talk to children frankly no it's not at all it's it's a really i completely forgot that one do you know why i forgot about it because it, it's i was so into that scene i didn't write any notes down as it doesn't appear at all she looks staring at the screen <laughs> with big eyes it's a lovely lovely point she sort of recognizes herself and she sees that she's actually like she sees that she's a regular regular person and it's just a look on her face it's this fantastic beautiful little sort of like self-esteem moment i guess or just it's, it just remind me that the, the storyline is very much about emotional abuse and emotional toxicity and it's kind of the antidote to that almost is this kind of like no recognize see yourself or who you really are not someone else's idea of you and it's really it's quite upsetting it's it's really moving it's a beautiful moving moment and again just to put this stuff into a six-part ghost story on friday afternoon is wonderful and i think what maybe slightly elevates it from being a moral story about love who you are because you're beautiful anyway to being 
a properly compassionate story is the fact that Minty kisses the birthmark. Yes, yes. It's one of the few TV serials from this genre, I think, with actual heart and actual compassion to it. I think so, yeah. If you compare it to, like, the other one we watched, Escape Into Night, and the, <laughs> those nastily bickering children and that, <laughs> and that, has, <laughs> that has vague poignancy in it. Or Box of Delights, that's all about adventure. Or Children of Green No is all about being very rich and well looked after and inherited a house. Uh, the Owl yeah. Service is about horror and revenge and lust. This is much more emotionally healthy and compassionate and quite modern feeling in that respect. Yeah, because all those other stories are resolved through sort of like magical intervention or the talisman finally works against the villain, which it kind of does here, but that's not the point. That's why Miss Vol's disintegration isn't a big deal, because that's not the point. That's not the victory. Of course, the talisman gets rid of the villain. It doesn't matter. She's irrelevant. The point is that you save, you redeem that child's view of themselves. You save that child from that hideous, abusive mindset, and that's that's the power of it. And it's through, it is literally through the it's through compassion and understanding and communication, and that's that's a beautiful and a very modern idea, and it's so powerful. And yeah, of course, after that, there's no great, you know, you just Miss Vol just blows up and dries away. Of course, she does because there's no point to her anymore. It's like a contrast between this and shall we say lesser writers who use in inverted commas pure love as almost like a MacGuffin or a weapon, yeah. but don't actually really understand it. It's just like, we, I have this weapon called pure love. It causes Cybermen's heads to explode or, you know, stupid things like that. <laughs> yep. Uh, don't like. And, and people who, shall we say, have never experienced pure love <laughs> can't write about it. <laughs> yeah, you get that impression sometimes, don't you? You do a rather. bit, yes. Where this is actually, it doesn't need to say, I have this, you know, I have this ray gun that shoots pure love this is actually someone demonstrating compassion for someone and it makes it much more affecting and much more effective yeah because it's not a, it's not a magical gesture it's not like a big green it's not like a big heart beam shining out mm. it's something that anyone could do for someone else it's a real world action. and it's not a weapon and that's why it's so beautiful it's not a weapon it doesn't cause anything to explode yeah there are no weapons are there the thing i think is very effective and poignant and sort of caught me off guard, but in a good way, is the moment that Miss Vole is destroyed, the children are running away and waving. Like, they've gone. It says that on the notes here as well, exactly the same thing. It reminded me of when you see an animal being released into the wild, when people have got their bringing up and rearing an injured wild animal, and the animal might hang around with them and show the human affection. But as soon as you release it, it doesn't hang around and go, well, it's been lovely. And I'll, I'll think of you and, yeah, all that. It's just gone. Yeah, they're gone. Dory appears and the three of them just run off and leave it. And Minty's left alone again. There's this long sequence where she sort of walks through Belton and things like that. Um, but once again, she's alone as she was at the start and she's lost her friends. Not just lost them, they are dead. They are gone. They died 100 years ago, whatever. It does seem to infer that, because obviously she hasn't saved them because they'll not grow up to be adults. So it does seem like they're, dead but in a more positive way the book suggests that this is the one change there's a sequence of the book at this point when dory reappears and we see the three of them run into the moonlight and there's this sort of moment where minty is given a choice somehow she understands she has a choice if she wants to she can become a child forever as well and live in which it just says i could run on forever in moon time so she could actually become part of their world she has the choice she could go with them into the sort of weird dream world of the dead, presumably. 
and she makes an active choice to return to the sunlight and back into reality. It's very poignant in the book. She's really tempted. She really wants to just be a child forever with them, but she, you know, she makes the choice to return to her mother. And I think it's probably also important that she's about fourteen as well. Yeah, she's older than the rest. Yeah, she's right on that kind of brink where if you don't choose to be a child forever, you'll never get the. Not that anyone ever has that opportunity, but in this in this magical fantasy world, if you don't choose now, you'll never get the chance again. Yeah. Like we were saying, for the final time, when she goes to the moon dial to use it for the final time, almost like this is the final adventure of childhood. I know, and that's, that's the feeling that it gives off. And then that same idea is repeated at that point. Did you notice she walks around all the locations from the show, one by one? She visits them all, and it's like it's really saying goodbye to everything. But before that happens, of course, there's a bit I've also not got notes about. Her mother. Mum's awake. Mum's awake. Yeah, yeah mum comes back. Mum's out of the coma. It's great. And I think Siri Neal's acting's particularly excellent here. She plays it the only time in the show. She plays it without that power and maturity. She plays it like a little kid again. It's really clever. It's astonishing scene. Essentially just bursts into tears. But it seems quite realistic as well. It's quite an authentic performance. She hugs Aunt Mary. It says here, don't hug her in my nose. (laughs) Aunt Mary's cheered up by this time. Completely, completely. I mean, I guess you could say that Aunt Mary's been so off because she's been worried about her goddaughter. If you were going to excuse her awkward behaviour. No, 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 you can't. You can't do. Do you know why you can't do? I made a jelly. That's why you can't do it. That's why you can't do that. But children like jelly. I've exuded a jelly from myself. <laughs> I made a jelly. I love that jelly. Yeah, I'm still your jokes in the last episode. Um, I just found a jelly. Ew. I done a jelly. <laughs> oh dear. The other made me laugh and listen to it as well. But children like jellies. Yeah. No, we can't. She's she's just annoying. She is annoying, but she's meant to be annoying. I mean, she's meant to be the annoying old lady. Miss Raven's just gone. She's moved on to do something else. She just vanished. Well, she didn't va- they did she vanish away? She no, she got the tax. Yes. <laughs> There's a statue that Minty looks at and says, Vole, Raven, or something like that. And it's supposed to suggest that the statue's supposed to be of one of them. A, a woman screaming and holding a bird. I don't know what's going on there at all, but it gets a bit vague. I guess a lot of the plotting has probably come from just what statues are in Belton House, because these are all actual actual pieces of ornamentation in the gardens. So she, so Helen Cresswell has maybe just woven the story in around what she's seen in Belton House, which is quite an interesting way of doing it, I think. It is. That does imply, though, that the owners of Belton House at some point in the last few hundred years made a definite choice to have those urns with terrifying faces. I was like, <laughs> yay, that's exactly what I want in my garden. So that makes me absolutely jump out of my skin every time I turn around at night. This passes the Bechdel test with flying colours. It very much does. Apart from uh, Mags the Gardener and Tom, I don't think any male characters talk to each other or meet. They don't actually, do they? That's very true. They don't meet at all. You know what? Looking back, that was also something that I liked at the time as well. Suddenly that, that's just triggered a memory because very often kids TV at the time, it was very boy-centric and I was always a bit like, I don't want to watch boys do this rubbish. Um, for some reason, can't imagine what that would have been. Yeah, for some reason, I never identified with boy heroes at the time, obviously. Just, yeah, linking back to the theme of being feeling excluded in society at that age again as well. I mean, I joke earlier on about like, how you know, I had a 15-year-old crush the Siri Neal, but it was more the fact that she was like kind of, it was she was an actual woman protagonist of my age who was cool in a TV show, who didn't depend on it. It was really great. It was really sort of really liberating, really powerful thing. And I absolutely loved it. Are there any others? The only one I can think of off the top of my head is Moon Stallion with a 
with a girl protagonist rather than a boy protagonist of this kind of run of adaptations. Yeah, let me think. Um, not at this point. Dark season that comes after. Dark season has the character Marcy Hatter, and it's not an adaptation, but it's got Marcy Hatter as a fantastic, fantastic character in there as the sort of protagonist. And she's amazing. But there aren't that many, are there? No, it's mainly boys. The Secret World of Polly Flint by Helen Creswell, again, is, is there on, on ITV. But um, it's really bizarre. It's really, really, really strange. Even by these standards, it's strange. Lots of unconnected sequences that have got no relevance to the rest of the story, but are really peculiar. And of course, this is the point at which we come to the graveyard. She does a little farewell tour of Belton. She, she gets to the graveyard. And, and puts the pieces together the rest of the audience did about four weeks previously. <laughs> Edit. Oh, and then she says the she just says full circle, which isn't the dialogue in the book. It's just the last line of the book. It's just full circle. But she says it out loud. She's naming her favourite Doctor Who story. She is, yes. Absolutely. She, uh, Games of Androzani. Oh, <laughs> She's a big Adric fan. My observation, but the last thing that appears on the screen is you get the shot of the three moontime children, or dead children, quite frankly, the ghost children, running off up a beautiful sort of like pathway. It's almost exactly the same composition as the end of one of my favourite short horror films ever, Lost Hearts, which ends with ghost children walking away into a very beautiful summer thing and fading away. Oh, the um, ghost story for Christmas one. Yeah. As my notes say, there's less murder in this than there is in Lost Hearts. But yeah, you know, that's really grim, that one, isn't it? It's horrible, but it's got a very... Lost Hearts almost feels like a, a nasty version of, of uh, Moondale. It does, yeah. So Moondale's sense. fairly nasty in parts, but Lost Hearts is properly... I watch that over Christmas. That is properly ghoulish. I always do. I watch it every Christmas Eve just, you know, just for the vibes. Yeah. <laughs> just the torn-out heart vibes. And it's a beautiful... As I say, the book just finishes on Minty looking out the gravestone and realising that's her friend's grave that she's been walking past this time and getting the weird little shivers as she passes it. They add that nice little kind of almost like little golden ending on the TV adaptation to see them sort of running off ghostly into this and fading away. We see that they're happy. I don't know which version I like best. I honestly don't. I think they both work. I like generally how vague the ending is because I think World says that, oh, you're going in there to to wrap up a few loose ends. But actually she doesn't. Like you say, it is a farewell tour. But, it, yeah. but other than the twist, the twist of it being the Tom's twist. grave, didn't see that <laughs> yeah. one coming. There's not really it's anything. Not at all. Not, there's no real new information in there or nothing is actually wrapped up or tied up. And I quite like how vague that is. We don't even see her... Because I think in my imagination, we then had an end scene with her and her mum. And her mum having come home from hospital and picking up their life. But you don't. The last we see of uh, her mum is her just slightly opening her eyes. So we know she's going to be all right, but we don't see anything beyond that. There's no sense of putting it back together again. There's no sort of like... There's no resolution for Minty. The kids... The other children get resolution. For Minty, and interestingly, like, the characters who don't get resolution are Minty, Miss Vol, and Miss Raven. We don't understand what any of their fates are, particularly. It's more ambiguous with the the, 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 the witchy ones, obviously, but then, oh, that's a point as well, actually. The book, I'm just realizing that the, the book does that the TV show doesn't. It makes it very clear that um, Minty knows that she's a witch oh. and that she sees dead people all the time. So Minty refers to herself as a witch in the book. Oh, really? And she sees her dead father several times. Oh, that's interesting. So she's a little Hayley Joel Osmond. Yeah, basically. She sees dead people. Or she is like the balancing witchy power against Bolton Raven. Oh, that's interesting. They've cut that totally, I suppose. It might be quite dark. There's no way you could really get that across on screen particularly. I think in this, she's just presented as being quite sensitive and thoughtful and that's yeah. why she's there. She's uniquely so, apparently. That's why she's been the first 
child in 60 years to be able to free these children because she's quite thoughtful and isn't brash and horrible. She's not possessed demon child <laughs> on the village in a mask. I'm, I wish you hadn't said that about the pumpkins because my brain is now just seeing that all the pumpkins are indeed identical. They're all the same pumpkin. And they're very floaty oh, and make God. a very plastic <laughs> pattering sound as they go into the water. I suspended my disbelief. <laughs> I forgot. I'd never noticed that now. I can't even see it. I sort of like the fact that we don't see Minty going back to her Uxbridge, normal life, back to school, back in the school uniform kind of thing. Even though we assume she does, but it's it sort of keeps you in the spell. Definitely. Thinking about it, that's another trait in Helen Creswell's books. They never have the return to normality. It's implied, and sometimes there's a sort of suggestion. The best, the ones I like best are there's a vague suggestion that the characters are going to take some of this magic with them. It's not the end of their story. They're going to, it's changed them in some way, and they've, they've got a bit of spooky powers going on now themselves as well. A few of them suggest that. But no, there's never any sort of particular back home again, everything back to normal you know, return the hero's journey sort of thing. It just sort of cuts off and we're left a little bit of ambiguity. What happens to them next? What do they experience? And as I said right at the start, the bit in a book that's very similar to this, Up the Pier, it's called, where the, the protagonist has to deal, the, the, the sort of challenge they have to face is, do you believe this is real? And will you believe this is real when you're 30 years old? Or you just think it's a story you made up, which is a really, ha- as I said at the start, it's a really haunting kind of point idea and i kind of think i mean maybe it's just my natural optimism the fact that minty is 14 in this and not eight means that that actually she will grow up and be and still have the magic about her and not become a jaded i think so cynical adult and lose all that i think it's it's possibly more of a, a thing and i think that's one of the things that is explicit in the narnia series that you can only do this when you're yeah. a child and even if you you're still legally a child but you're sl- you're a bit too old like if you're oh you're 14 or 15 now you can't go back into narnia which is horribly poignant i don't like it <laughs> i dislike that i hate that mm. one of my favorite novels is um boneland by Alan garner which is about a sort of the hero of a children's story who's now 50 years old oh nice and like what and it's like and he is in constant therapy and he has huge memory blocks about his about his adolescence for obvious reasons because he's trying not to remember that he saw this magical stuff happening and what does it do to you and how much of it was how you imagined it to be as a kid and how much of it was a lot darker and nastier because, yeah, it's a really fascinating story. It's an incredibly peculiar book, but it's wonderful. I like to think Minty takes it all in her stride. She's just, huh. When she's 30, she just goes, I did all that. That was <laughs> that was great. I had a great time. I miss Tom, but I had a great time. I'm awesome. I think she does. I, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what she does. She also has adventures with ghosts. She finds, she gets the Miss, Vol- the Miss Raven outfit as well for herself. And she becomes the, like the gothy ghost investigator, this time doing the opposite work and saving them. And on the odd bit of time travel, you know, involved in there as well. Yeah. She basically becomes like, she, she lives out my dream life, basically. <laughs> That's what happens to her. Excellent. Well, that's an excellent bit of uh, fanon there. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Reviewing it was just such a pleasure. I've, and I have seen it a lot over the years, but just watch it again. It still has the same power. I would definitely recommend it. If you've not seen it, just be, try and watch, try and get a hold of a copy of it, watch it online, whatever. It's wonderful. It's one of the nicest and most beautifully well made and well written. Probably nicest is the wrong word, but it's one of the most beautifully well made pieces of children's um, genre fiction for TV out of that era. Definitely, I think it's the best. 
I would go so far as to say it is the best example of that. I think the one most people think of is Box of Delights yeah. because it's very Christmassy. But I think Box of Delights is so weird <laughs> without having much emotional depth. Yeah. And, of course, it's posh children as well, which can be a bit irksome these days. <laughs> a little bit. They're yeah, very, very posh. <laughs> Box of Delights is very good for atmosphere and that kind of Christmassy magic. I think Moondial is the better story and the more interesting characters. Definitely. I think it's actually going to be controversial to say, I think for all the sort of beauty of Box of Delights and um, Children of Green, Green No, I think Moondial is the best made one. Because it does it on a very sort of could be. I think it takes a very almost for given the locations and the setting, it still manages to take quite a a very minimalist approach to construction, to narrative, to maze on set, all those elements that make work in a really sharp way. And not as as my final point, I will make not to jokingly going about Celine and Julie again. It's actually got a lot in common with that sort of style of filmmaking because it is just like cheap cameras running around a location with lots of long takes. It's got a lot visually in common with that style sort of French Nouveau Vague as well. And also characters you like spending time with. Absolutely. Minty and Tom are Celine and Julie in a way. They kind of are. These two pals (laughs) hanging out, doing stuff. There's a phrase I never thought I'd use in a conversation. I'm glad that I did. (laughs) I am very glad that I did. Well, on that note, thank you for joining me for this bonus episode. You are more than welcome. It's a delight, as always, a delight. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. So tell us about all the various things you do and if people can get in touch with you on Twitter and that sort of thing. And also, another question, are there any going to be any Violet Ghost trains coming up? Oh, yeah, there will be. Um, so, yeah, my podcast that I do about twice a year at the moment, the Violet Ghost trains <laughs> on all the usual podcast sources, on Twitter, I am Crow Violets in the plural, Crow Violets. There will be some more ghost trains coming up. We're going to be looking at a particularly unpleasant Laurel and Hardy film from the 1930s, Laurel and Hardy murder Excellent. case, at some point very soon. There's also the possibility my 11-year-old niece wishes to guest on the Violet Ghost Train, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm just going to find something that we can watch together to do that. <laughs> and, oh, I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to do do you remember in the 1970s and 80s at the end of an episode on, on of a BBC TV show, the announcer would say, and Paul Darrow is currently appearing in Run for Your Wife in South End or whatever. <laughs> yes. So can I do that now? Go for it. Audrey Violet will be shortly appearing in Carbonara for Four at the Hatch Collective Art Space in Sheffield on March the 4th. <laughs> I always wanted to do that. Fantastic. I'll be doing cabaret shows. By the way, if you listen to this in about six or seven months' time, you've missed it. I'm sorry. It, it was amazing. You missed it. You were good. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Heather normally does all the social media stuff when she's here, and I always forget to write it down but I do remember that Twitter is at retro underscore tube so that's where you find us anyway on that note I'm so bad at ending these (laughs) Heather's really good at ending these I'm really bad at it well anyway bye bye and remember if you see a ghost in the mirror the devil will get you (laughs) yep it's true (laughs) oh thank you very much that was marvellous I made a jelly children like jellies This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. 
Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at 10.99. Look for the pink and white cover.